This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Philippians chapter 2 in the Word of God tonight. Philippians chapter 2. Good to see you on this Tuesday night. Let me mention a couple more books at the uh, table there. Uh, dealing with the subject of last night, a similar uh, uh, emphasis is in the book called Experiencing Jesus. Uh, this is dealing with personal revival through the Spirit for Life. It's based on Galatians 2.20, uh, kind of merging uh, uh, that uh, truth with 2 Corinthians 5.17 about the new creature and what's all new. And uh, last night we talked about body, soul, and spirit, new man, uh, old man, uh, that old sin master, and there's a new leader, and some of that can get confusing. Well, uh, we go over that, and we have pictures. So if you need a picture to get you through a book, <laughs> there's lots of pictures. They're all their diagrams. But nonetheless, uh, throughout this particular book, uh, trying to help us understand that, uh, that uh, wonderful truth that uh, when we were placed into Jesus, the cross did come in like a knife and cut right be between that core of our being and that indwelling sin. Uh, master, And so that's a marvelous truth, and sometimes the pictures can be a help, and uh, so that's going into uh, to that. And then there is a book on the table called The Prayer That Makes a Difference. Now, I can't remember, but four years ago when I was here, this might have been a blue cover that was paperback. Uh, so the publisher changed the, uh, the cover so that you think you don't have it. <laughs> so that you buy it again. No, not really. Uh, they just wanted to uh, put it uh, hardback. Uh, dear friend of ours, Janet Shea, wrote uh, this book. This is actually a biography of my grandmother. And uh, just, just uh, sweet, a simple, childlike faith. Uh, lots of answers to prayer that uh, really are quite remarkable. And uh, some of them so stunningly remarkable, uh, they're, they're really amazing. But it's so neat because I remember my grandmother well. Uh, she laughed, she giggled, she was as down-to-earth as they come. Now, we need to get that. When somebody is in the spiritual realm, when they live in the heavenlies, as we sometimes say, they are in the heavenly realm, they're in that spiritual realm in the heavenlies, but you know, in the earthly realm, they're down-to-earth. They really are. And people who act pious in the earthly realm... <laughs> may not be in the heavenly realm as much as they are trying to portray. But uh, at any rate, uh, she was very down to earth, but had simple childlike faith. And, uh, you know, it's an example of what a regular person, um, what happens when a regular person trusts in an extraordinary God. <laughs> and so it just answered a prayer after answered prayer. Janet Shea, who wrote this, was in one of our meetings in, uh, uh, in uh, Arizona and she just got burdened to write the story. She did a beautiful job of it. And so uh, I thank the Lord that, that she's got that uh, done and that's available. Well, tonight, Philippians chapter 2 in the Word of God tonight. Philippians chapter 2. Now, it's Sunday morning. In the Sunday school hour, we looked at being a glow with Jesus. And that personally revived life or filled with Christ, spirit-filled life, that's what it looks like. It looks like Jesus. Because the Spirit is filling you with the life of Jesus Christ. And so we saw the importance Sunday morning of a clean heart. Because it is sin and self that gets in the way and blocks the view of Jesus. It tinctures uh, the view of the Spirit of Jesus seeking to uh, portray that life of Christ through our soul. And when there's so much soul life in the way, it hinders, it blocks, and those kinds of things. And so Sunday night we saw the importance then of a right way of thinking. Uh, critical. Uh, your belief system, that you act what you really believe. 
And so if you have that kind of down-on-yourself, dirtball mentality, uh, we think that's being humble, but in reality it's actually insulting the very righteous nature of God that has been implanted in you and where the Holy Spirit has then moved in. So last night we peeled back some of the layers of what that meant, that we are severed from that sin master, indwelling sin, now raised with Christ a new man, and now joined to the Spirit of Jesus, connecting us to Christ on the throne. All of that is marvelous reality. We are in Him. As we sang tonight, we're hidden in the cleft of the rock. Why? Because God is our rock, and we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. It's marvelous truth. When it comes to all of that provision, when we're actually understanding and when the Spirit of God is convincing us that we really are in Christ, that's a protection. And Christ really is in us. That's a phenomenal provision. Then it ought to produce a response. So let's look at the response part of this tonight. In Philippians chapter 2, a very unique look at this response by looking at the human Christ. Philippians 2, verse 5, let this mind... Be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What a verse. This mind, this way of thinking. Be in you that was in Jesus. In the Jesus when he walked this earth, because it goes on to say, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, of course in all things, but ultimately unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, what does that mean? Look at the next verse. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, the text begins with a mandate. It's an imperative. It is a command. Let this mind. It's not just a suggestion. It's actually an imperative. And it's, it's a command to let this mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. When he as a man functioned, there was a way of thinking, and God says, let that be your way of thinking. Now, we have a fascinating phrase in verse 8 because it says, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Now, when we think of humbling do we not typically immediately think of what we talked about Sunday morning? Well, let's confess our sins. Well, he did not have any sins to confess. So what does it mean? Because the text says explicitly, he, Jesus, in his humanity, as a man, humbled himself. Now, friends, we need to know the answer to that. We've got to know it. We've got to get it. It's critical because that is at the core of his way of thinking. And that is the way of thinking that God is urging us, commanding us 
to let that be our way of thinking. So I want to speak tonight on the subject of the Jesus way of thinking. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to open our eyes. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to give us understanding and make this real in our lives. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for each one who's coming this Tuesday night. Those that are listening in now on, on live stream. Now, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us tonight. Open our eyes, Lord, our understanding. And convince us of the truth. And show us this Jesus way of thinking. And may we embrace this same way of thinking. And so, Lord, tonight, use the truth again to liberate and set free. Lord, adjust us where we're off focus. Where we need that adjustment. And so, Lord Jesus, once again, I claim the victory that you won at the cross through your shed blood over the enemy. Manifest that now. Breathe on us again. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1987, I sat as the candidate for ordination. This was in the Chicago area. And my father, who was a pastor, uh, called a bunch of the preachers from northern Illinois to come and uh, uh, sit as the ordination council where they come and they grill you. <laughs> and uh, they ask you questions to uh, determine whether or not they consider you sound in the faith and so on. And if they think so, then they recommend to the church to ordain you. Well, I remember uh, uh, that council meeting quite well. Well, since that time, I've had the opportunity once in a while, it doesn't happen often for an evangelist, but a couple of times I've had the privilege of sitting on an ordination council. One time, it was in the country of Spain. <laughs> I had no idea what they were saying, uh, but uh, I was there. <laughs> they did interpret when I got to preach for the service. Uh, I did remember one time when there was a big ruckus in the meeting. And it was funny because nobody was, it wasn't the candidate and the preachers, it was the preachers against the preachers. <laughs> That's usually what happens in these things. And uh, uh, so this big ruckus was going on and I said to my friend Joaquin Lopez, I said, Joaquin, what's going on? He goes, predestination. I said, oh. <laughs> Same thing over there as over here. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> at any rate, uh, you know, uh, these councils are quite interesting. Now, in most of these councils, there are certain questions that are just going to come up. They just, it's just a part of the protocol. There are certain questions they are going to get asked. And one of those questions goes something like this. One of the preachers will look at the candidate and say, Would you please tell the council your understanding of the Bible term kenosis? And, of course, the young man, well-trained in the original languages, or at least going to pretend like he is, says, Oh, yes, the Greek word kenosis means that Jesus emptied himself. And so they all look at each other with a nod of affirmation. Okay, you got that one right. And they go on. Now, what I've never heard asked is what does emptied himself mean? <laughs> you say, well, why are you bringing all that up? Because it's in our passage. The word kenosis is underneath some of the words we just read. And yes, the basic meaning is emptied himself, but what is that? Now, friends, we need to understand because it's at the core 
of this mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, this way of thinking. And friends, we therefore need to understand what this is talking about uh, when it uh, says, uh, as we often say, he emptied himself. We've got to understand it because that's a part of his mind. What was his mind? What was his way of thinking? What was his paradigm that caused him to empty himself? Further, what does that mean? And beyond that, what does that mean to us? Because we're the ones here commanded to allow this way of thinking to be our way of thinking. Now, friends, that's the simple challenge for us tonight to have a response to the provision truth that is a faith response because that really is the way of thinking that we're going to see played out here that we need to embrace as our way of thinking. Now, let's spend the majority of our time on Jesus' way of thinking. Then we'll make the application toward ourselves as uh, we bring the uh, uh, message to a close. But what was Jesus' way of thinking? Well, we can analyze his own words in the Gospels and what's really interesting, if you go to the Gospel of John, where you have the longer discourses, as we often call them, and you can begin to see certain things come out over and over again, and you can begin to summarize. And I believe it's a fair statement to say that a summary of Jesus' way of thinking that was underneath his mode of operation, you could sum it up with this phrase, not I, but the Father, because we see it over and over again. For Jesus, it was not I but the Father. In our text, we're going to see in a moment, it's found in the words of Romans, excuse me, Philippians 2, verses 6, 7, and 8. But in that statement, not I but the Father, you have two parts, obviously the not I part, and then secondly, but the Father part. Let's start with the not I. When Jesus said not I, it involved two major emphases. The first one is not my will. Not my will, but the Father's. In other words, this is answering the question, when Jesus walked this earth as a human being, who was his leader? And he says, not I, but the Father. We find it in words such as this, John 5, 30, I seek not my own will. That's what he said. But the will of the Father. John 6, 38, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Now, friends, he meant that. Something about his humanity, he's saying, look, this isn't about my will, it's about the Father's will. In John 7, 16, 7, 28, 8, 42, 8, 50, 17, 8, all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. Okay, now because of that phrase, we, okay, we, we kind of get this. Because we're familiar with that phrase in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but thine be done. So clearly, when Jesus said, not I, it's very clear, it's not my will, but the Father's. Now the second emphasis is quite amazing. We're not nearly as familiar with this. And quite frankly, it's shocking. Not only did Jesus say, not my will, he said, not my ability, but the Father's. You see, in the first emphasis, it's dealing with who's the leader. He says, not my will, but the Father's. Now we're dealing with power source. And he says, not my 
ability, not my power, but the Father. You say, did he actually say that? Yeah, a couple of times. How about John 5, 19? Jesus said, the Son, as so in referring to himself, can, that's your ability word, is able, the Son can do nothing from himself. You ever ponder that one? <laughs> he said it wasn't able to do anything. Wow. How can he say that? <laughs> well, maybe it's, you know, maybe, well, you know, maybe we're misreading it. Well, same chapter, John 5. Let's go down to verse 30. He words it this way. I can. There's your ability word. I'm able. I can, from my own self, do nothing. So two times he's making it very clear I'm not able, not my ability. Now, wait a second. Jesus could get up in the morning. He could uh, make breakfast. <laughs> he could eat. What does he mean when he says, I'm not able? I can't do anything on my own ability. What is he talking about? Well, he's not talking about the physical realm. He's talking about the spiritual realm because there's something about Jesus becoming a human being. There's something about entering humanity, the human race. There was something that was set aside, emptied. Something took place that's causing him to say these words, I'm not able. Wow. John 8, 28, I do nothing from myself, but as my father. John 12, 49, for I have not spoken out of myself, but the Father. John 14, 10, I speak not from myself, but the Father does the works. So, on this first emphasis of not I, Jesus says, not my will, but the Father's, not my ability, but the Father's. Now, let's stop and ponder this, because this is critical to our understanding. How in the world can Jesus actually say, not I? Not my will, and especially not my ability. I'm not able. How can he say that and not be lying? And the answer is found in understanding this word kenosis. This emptying of himself. What are we talking about? What is he talking about? Well, this is beautiful. In our text here tonight, we're going to see that this kenosis for Jesus, in a very real sense, had two phases. First of all, and primarily as we deal with this term, Jesus, as God, in order to come into our world, emptied himself. Let me just use the terminology, set aside the reputation of deity and the free exercise of the attributes of deity. You say, that really happened? Well, look at the text. It tells us here in verse 6, who, that's speaking of Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Okay, Jesus is God. He's deity. He's always been God. That never changed. So when we talk about emptying himself, kenosis, set aside, he's not setting aside deity. 
he set aside, setting aside the reputation of it and the free exercise of the attributes of deity. Look at the text when he says here in verse 7, but, now here's our translation of kenosis, made himself of no reputation. Let me stop right there. You know when Jesus came into our world, when he was born of a virgin and laid in a manger, outside of a very select few, the rest of the planet had no idea that was almighty God. See, the reputation wasn't there. He set aside the majesty and the glory when he came into our world. I mean, here he is in this manger, no room in the end. You know the stories from Christmas. Friends, all of that's real. It's because of kenosis. See, he set aside, he emptied himself of that reputation. And remember the glory of his deity, it only was allowed to show that one moment on the Mount of Transfiguration. See, that had been set aside, that reputation. He was still God. But in order to become a human, that had to be set aside, though he was still God. But not only that, he set aside what I'm calling the free exercise of the attributes of deity. In other words, he possessed all the divine attributes. Why? He's God. But he set aside using them. The text goes on to say, and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of Man, and being found in fashion as a man, it goes on. Okay, so not only did he set aside the reputation of deity, he set aside using the attributes of deity that he still possessed. So again, let's keep it clear. He's still God. That didn't change. He still possessed all the divine attributes. He possessed them, but he chose. He set aside using them. Why? In order to become fully man. There's no way he can be fully God and fully man at the same time without kenosis. And by the way, if you have some Muslim friends that you want to lead to Christ, this truth helps get them to Jesus. Because they cannot understand how Jesus could be both God and man, and this is how. And I remember a dear a Muslim man uh, got saved in one of our meetings uh, a few years ago, and this was the truth that got him to Jesus. As he realized, oh, that's how Jesus could be God. You see, he was God. He is God. That never changed. But he set aside both that reputation and the free exercise of the divine attributes in order to function fully as a man. But that poses a problem. Because if he's functioning as a man, how's he going to do supernatural work? How did he do all those miracle things that we read about? How did this happen? Well, here's the second phase. And this brings us to that humbled word in verse 8. This is what it's talking about. As a man, Jesus set aside his own will, not my will. And his own mere human ability, not my ability, but the Father's. And friends, it says right there, in being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. Now look, to be obedient, it means you set aside your will to obey the will of the one you're obeying. So there it is. So as a man, he's setting aside his own individual will as a human being and embracing the Father's will in order to be obedient. Friends, that's what it says. Now why is this important? Because this mind, this way of thinking... We are to allow to be in us. That's why we have to understand the second phase of this. 
when it comes to the first phase, we cannot set aside the reputation of deity because none of us have it. <laughs> Take a look around. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that. Uh, and we cannot set aside using the attributes of deity because we don't possess them. But the second part of this, the as a man part of this, verse 8, yes, that part we can and must follow. That Jesus as a man set aside his own will to embrace the Father's will, set aside his own ability to embrace the divine ability. Friends, that part we must, uh, we must embrace. That's the emphasis here. To let this mind, this humility that says, not my will, but the Father's, not my will, not my ab ability, but the Father's, that way of thinking of Jesus is what we must allow to be in us. And, of course, you have to get to the second part of that, but the fathers, which Jesus did. Again, John 5.30, I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father. And again, with his power, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father. So it's very clear both of these were very real. Now, how did all that happen? And this is fascinating because we've been talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's where we started in the Sunday school hour. Jesus did all this, not my will but the Father's, not my ability but the Father's, through the ministry of the same Holy Spirit that works in us. Now, this is fascinating to me. Listen to this verse. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, God was manifest in the flesh. Okay, that's Jesus in the incarnation coming into our world as a man. God was manifest in the flesh. Then it says this, justified in the Spirit. Now, wait a second. We talked about justification the other night. You know, because of our sins, we need to be justified and declared righteous. Our sin put on Christ, so his righteousness be credited to us. Well, Jesus didn't have any sins. Why does it say he was justified in the spirit? Well, it's interesting if you look at verb tenses and all the, the details, and I won't go into all that, but here's where it brings you. The statement is saying he allowed himself to live righteously by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like we're supposed to. Do you know that when Jesus was conceived, he was indwelt by the Spirit. The Bible tells us in Luke 1.35 that the angel Gabriel explaining to Mary, probably a teenager, how this virgin birth was going to take place. The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. So that according to Matthew 1 and verse 20, that which will be conceived and you will be conceived of or from the Holy Spirit. Now, you and I are indwelt by the Spirit at the new birth. Jesus was indwelt by the Spirit at conception. That's what it says. Then, of course, he was born. And we have 30 years that theologians call silent years because we really don't know that much. We have a few statements that tell us. But do you know that Jesus was filled with the Spirit in those 30 years? And it's not just a theological conclusion that makes common sense. There are intimations in Luke chapter 2. Uh, after the Christmas story, you go on a bit. In verse 40, it says, Jesus, as a boy, was filled with wisdom and the grace of God. That spirit enablement of God was upon him. Do you know that Jesus submitted himself and honored his father and mother by grace? what it says. Why? Because he's functioning as a human. He needed grace. Though he was divine, he, was set, he had set aside using those divine attributes, so his submission to mom and dad 
was by divine enablement. It was by spirit enablement. It was by grace. So his, what we would call personal holiness, his being filled, it's obviously the same Holy Spirit who fills us. He was filled. So he's indwelt at conception. He's filled uh, throughout childhood. And then those early adult years, up until age 30, there's another dimension that takes place, and this is absolutely fascinating. Now, he's about to enter public ministry, and there's a new dimension. There's a, there's a, a beyond dimension of the Spirit's ministry when it comes to impacting others. In other words, when we think in terms of ourselves, the Holy Spirit moves in. When the Holy Spirit in us imparts life, Christ's life to us, that's holiness. That's when you live right. When you're not I but Christ and you're experiencing him, which means there's going to be holiness. But in order to impact somebody else, it has to be the spirit not just in you to you, but now through you out to others. Overflow on this dimension beyond just your personal being that now is going to impact people that you are interacting with. So Jesus now is about to enter public ministry, and so there is a need for another dimension of the Spirit's ministry in his human existence. So what happened? Well, he went to a guy named John the Baptist. And he asked him to baptize him. And we read an interesting phrase, it's two words in the English, that after he was baptized, as he's coming out of the water, it says in Luke chapter 3, and... Praying. Have you ever noticed those two words? You know, that's an unusual place for a prayer meeting, don't you think? I've never seen a prayer meeting right as somebody comes out of the water. But you do in Luke 3. Apparently, the inspired text is letting us know whatever that was about, it's important. Because it's inserting it right there that as he comes out of the water, it says he was praying. So there's something on his heart. There was a burden. And the text is letting us know it's a big burden. It's a big deal. As Jesus comes out of the water, he's praying. What was this about? Well, the prayer is not recorded, but the answer to the prayer is. Because the next verse in Luke 3 tells us that the Holy Spirit descended in bodily shape like a dove upon him. Remember what we saw last night? Water baptism pictures spirit baptism. You know what Jesus was praying for? He was entering his public ministry. He needed in his humanity because of what he had set aside in kenosis. He needed this extra dimension of the spirit's ministry, not just to him like he'd experienced for 30 years, but now through him and upon him and out from him to others to impact those in genuine ministry. He was praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And friends, that baptism came not with fire like it does for us because we have things that need to be purged, but like a dove upon him. And then you have some uh, 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 genealogy and then you jump to the next event. It's Luke chapter 4 and verse 1. And the scripture says of Jesus, the next thing that happened after that was that he was full of the Holy Spirit. And then he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness. That's where he was tempted by Satan. And that lets us know that his victory over the enemy was through the power of the divine Holy Spirit. And then we're told that he returned. This is Luke 4, 14 and 15. He returned in the power. Remember when he said, I can do nothing of myself, that ability word? 
That's the word, I'm sure you've heard it, dunamis. You sometimes hear preachers say dynamite. It's really more the idea of ability. And so he said, I'm not able in his humanity, but now the Spirit has come upon him. And the Bible says he returned in the ability of the Spirit, and he taught. So his public teaching, preaching ministry is explicitly linked to the ability of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes into the synagogue and they hand him the book of Isaiah and he uh, opens it to Isaiah 61, 1 and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach. Do you see it? We read in the gospels phrases like, I cast out devils by the spirit of God. And I don't have time to detail all the instances that the gospels tell us, but all the way to the cross. In fact, let me jump to Hebrews 9.14. It says, He, Jesus, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without spot unto God. You see, all the way through, everything that He did was by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why He said, not my will, not my ability, but the Father's, all through the leadership and ability of the Holy Spirit. That's his way of thinking. Now, when we say not my will, we often call that deny self. And rightly so. Because that is what Jesus was doing in that very sense of not my will. But he also said, but the Father. You got to get to that yielding, embracing, trusting, depending on the Father, his will and his ability. There's a lot of falderall about the phrase, let go and let God. And people don't understand that in the original usage of that term, this is what it meant. Let go of self-will and self-dependence as you yield to God's will and God-dependence. That's what that phrase means. That's what it meant at the beginning. It's what it still means today by those who understand. And I don't know why it's so slaughtered by so many in our theological circles today. It's what Jesus did, not my will. Let go. But the fathers, let God. That's what it meant. By Hudson Taylor and those of that era, they understood. It's what Jesus set the precedent for. Not my will, but the fathers. Not my ability, but the fathers. Now, here's the big point. In the incarnation, when Jesus came into our world, because of having taken on the limitations of humanity through kenosis, because of setting aside, using the attributes of deity that he still possessed, and thus taking on the limitations of humanity. That means that Jesus on earth did what he did, not as God, but as man in dependence upon God. That's what he said. Wow. Do you know what that means, folks? His victory was by faith. It's the perfect example of faith. Perfect example of dependence. We say, oh, well, well you know, he, he was without sin because he, he's God. You missed it. No, it's because he said, not my will, but the Father's. 
not my ability, but the Father's, all through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That victory was as a man depending on deity. It wasn't just because he was deity. It's because as a man, he depended on deity. And friends, that's what it says. As a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. There it is. He depended on deity. And so when the scripture says that he was tempted, tested in all points like as we, yet without sin. Friends, it has meaning. I mean, how many times do we read that phrase that uh, he was tempted in all points uh, like as we, yet without sin, and we say, well, well, well of course, because he's God. You missed it. No, he's functioning as a man. He was tempted. In fact, according to the Gospel of Mark, those 40 days of temptation, we read the last part of it, the three temptations that are recorded, but the verb tense in Mark lets us know he was tempted for 40 days. We're told three different accounts that do parallel the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He was tempted in all points like as we yet without sin, but the point is, it's not just because he's God, it's because as a man, he depended on God. Just like we're supposed to. And it's that nature that got tested and tried, yet without sin, that got inserted into you when you were born again. There's our tie into regeneration from last night and the night before. That God's seed, that God's sperma part of you, that God's nature implanted in you, that very nature that walked this planet and was tested and tried, yet without sin, that nature got inserted into you. That's the new man created after God in righteousness and true holiness. You see, friends, his victory was not automatic because he's God. His victory was because as a man, he depended on God. It was by faith. Think about all the times when we read that Jesus went out and prayed. Got up early in the morning, went out to a desert place, went out to a mountain apart. Now look, if he's functioning as God, all of that was pretense and a sham. But Jesus doesn't pretend. And Jesus is not a sham. You know why he got up early and went out and prayed? He needed God. He needed the Father. He was functioning as a man to be like us, to represent us, to save us at the cross. He was functioning as a man. And when he went out and prayed, it's because he needed the Father's leadership. Not my will, but the Father's. He needed the Father's uh, ability. Not my ability, but the Father's. He was going out to get refueled. Wow. Now, if the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity needed to depend on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, how much more do we... And think about how he valued the ministry of the Spirit. Because every time he says, not my will, but the Father's, not my ability, but the Father's, the, the will and the ability came through the Spirit. He valued the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we live in a way, a day that devalues the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's killing us. And perhaps we're overreacting to some who went into excesses in the 60s and 70s. Uh, maybe that's it. Maybe it's just because we do always resist the Holy Spirit, his access. But regardless, when you devalue the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you're devaluing Jesus because he's the spirit of Jesus and the spirit of the Father. You're devaluing, devaluing both the Son and the Father. In fact, it's the spirit who takes of Christ and shows him unto us, John 16 tells us. You devalue the spirit, you ignore the spirit, and you cut off your avenue of seeing Jesus. 
And you wonder why the Christian life sometimes seems so dull and, you know, so lifeless. Well, you cut off the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You just cut off the lifeline. Now, friends, Jesus valued the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Obviously, we should as well. Now, in John 17, the high priestly prayer just before the betrayal, Jesus made it clear that he was in the Father, and the Father was in him. And that, of course, was through the Spirit. And thus, his way of thinking is not I, but the Father. Then he went to the cross, hours later. Finished the work, died, rose again exalted to the right hand of the Father and sent the Spirit so that now when we trust in Jesus, we, as we saw last night, are placed into Christ and Christ places his Spirit into us. Now with Jesus, he was in the Father and the Father was in him, so the paradigm is not I but the Father. For us, we're in Christ and Christ is in us. So our way of thinking should be not I but Christ. There it is. There's your application. And it's all through the same ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, jump down to the end of verse 12 in the text. When it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, that cannot be what many make that out to be. It cannot be self-dependent human effort. Jesus didn't even do that in his humanity. Well, then what does it mean? Verse 13 is the key. This is God's economy. For it is God which worketh in you. That's divine initiation. That's God stirring you. Anything good has to originate in God. Both to will. There's your faith response. Not my will, but his. And to do. Not my ability, but his. Of his good pleasure. There it is. Now, we have to ask ourselves... Is that our way of thinking? See, this is what we were aiming at on Sunday night. Is our goal really Jesus? Is he really the leader? We would all, I would think, many of us, most of us here tonight would say, well, yeah, you know, I surrender all, I, you know, I did that, and, and, you know, I regularly surrender. And... But is he really the leader, or is it our version of outcome? Our version of how Christianity should play out. Interesting, Jesus didn't say, not my will, but the law. And he had the whole, whole Old Testament. And he never denigrates the law because he fulfilled the law for us. But he didn't say, not my will, but the law. Outcome. He said, not my will, but the Father. Person. Guidelines are marvelous. God's guidelines are glorious but it's not the same as a guide. A guide has to be a person. You remember when the disciples were plucking the grain, Matthew 12, and eating it, and it was a Sabbath day, so the Pharisees were ticked off, and they came, and they're criticizing the disciples, you know, how can they do this? And Jesus said, oh, if you had understood the words, and he quotes Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, if you understood that God cares more about people than laws. In other words, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, he never violates the law, 
but he fulfills it the way God intends for it to be fulfilled. And the way God intends for it to be fulfilled is to help, not crush. And we leave God out of it, and yes, the letter of the law kills. You get God into it, and that same law is now fulfilled because you get Jesus into the equation, and he never violates the law. He fulfills it. In fact, we'll see that unfolded, Lord willing, more tomorrow night in a marvelous way. But friends, is he really our leader is what I'm trying to say. Now, obviously, if you're indulging the flesh and you've got secret sins in the closet and junk going on behind closed doors and rottenness and choices, obviously, you're not yielding to his leadership, and I'm not either. Anytime any of us do anything along those lines, and you yield to the flesh, the works of the flesh are manifest. But I'm also talking about when we're trying to do right, but our goal is all of our stuff rather than him. You see, the way you get to that right outcome is him. Because when you access him, it comes out right. It'll, the Holy Spirit will never lead you to sin, never. But he doesn't lead to mere formality either. That's the form of godliness that denies the power. And friends, if we want to steer clear of this rules focus and this no rules focus, which is still rules focus, you've got to focus on the ruler. His name is Jesus. Have we come there? Do we get that? Not my will. Not my will. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit never leads contrary to the book he wrote. And what's clear, what's absolute, is absolute. But what's not as clear may vary within those absolutes. And what we call matters of preference, I think we get that wrong too. It's not our preference, it's the Holy Spirit's. Because <laughs> he knows where you need to draw lines. In other words, the absolutes are like a plateau. If you get off of that, it's compromise. It's the high ground. Whatever God makes that clear. The stuff we don't debate about, that's the absolute stuff. <laughs> the stuff we debate about, well, if you have a heart for God's authority and we debate about it, maybe it's not as clear. And when we make it clear in black and white where God doesn't, we just eclipse the role of the Holy Spirit who's supposed to be the leader. Now again, those variations are going to be within the boundaries of the absolutes. But the Holy Spirit may lead you to draw a line here and you to draw it here. And it may vary a little bit on that plateau because God knows where a line needs to be drawn. We call them standards to keep us from going over the edge or in some cases just to keep us from stumbling somebody that we influence. And whatever he leads us to, you know what? We need to obey. Do You know, it's okay to have a conviction that nobody else has. If the Holy Spirit led you to it, then take it. My dad always said, don't worry about it. If you're the only one, Scott, that's okay. But don't make that absolute for everybody else. See, that's where we get it wrong. We're thinking, wow, if i got to be miserable, you got to be miserable too. <laughs> In other words, if i got to give all this stuff up, then you do. No, 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 no. you you got to obey the Holy Spirit. See, compromisers make absolutes variable. Can't do that. Legalists make variables Absolute. Can't do that either. In fact, it's interesting when those Pharisees were condemning the disciples, 
Jesus said, you know, if you'd understood what it means when it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Now, friends, according to Proverbs, if you call evil good, or if you call good evil, both alike are an abomination unto the Lord. And so it is wrong to commend the guilty, but it is also wrong to condemn the innocent. You say, well, I don't know, well, we're ever going to get this right. Get to Jesus. See, that's the point. He's the leader. And he knows how to lead us right where we are, in our context, in our situation, and where we are on our journey. Do you know no two of us are in the same spot in our journeys with God? And we try to make it all the same for everybody. Well, wait a second. You know, that's not how it works even in the physical realm. A two-year-old makes two-year-old messes, right? I mean, how many of us get ticked off at a two-year-old for making a two-year-old mess? I mean, you might if you're carnal, but, you know, you know, oh, you know well, they, they, that's what they do to their diapers. Okay, that's why you got diapers. Okay, you know, in other words, we don't get mad at a two-year-old for doing what a two-year-old does. Now, if he's 20 and making the same mess, we've got a problem. <laughs> and in the same way, people are different points in their journey with God. If you try to make it all the same, you force people into perpetual immaturity because they're not allowed to grow. And when we grow, it's never to sin, it's never to mere formality, it's to life in Christ. The only way we keep out of those pitfalls is Jesus. See, his way of thinking, that's the key. Not our will, but his. He's the leader. And whatever you focus on, you depend on. And thus, not my ability, but his. See, sometimes we get part of it. In my own journey, I was awakened to the power of the Spirit. Man, 1990s, whoa, that was great stuff. But it was all for what I perceived as the goal, our box. Man, we, we really had one too. Uh, and so, <laughs> you know, get to the power of the Spirit to get in the box, as I mentioned the other day. No, 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 it's got to be the power of the Spirit to get into his box. God has a box, it's just bigger than ours. <laughs> So it's not his power for our will, is what I'm trying to say. But nor is it the other way around. Sometimes we get it the other way around. His or our power for his will. That's flesh dependence trying to obey. That's wrong too. But when you get these together, his will and his power. See, it's God that works in you. There's the divine stirring. Both to will, not my will, but his. And to do, not my ability, of his, but his. See, in that economy, the faith response accesses the power of God to do the will of God. And that's when things happen the way that God intends. That's his economy. The cash is faith. Major Ian Thomas went home to be the Lord a year or two ago. He was from Great Britain. And uh, he would often use the phrase, Lord, I bow out. Would you bow in? That's a beautiful phrase, don't you think? Because that's what we're talking about. It's what Jesus said. Not my will, I bow out. But the fathers, would you bow in? Not my ability, I bow out. But the fathers, would you bow in? See, that's the exchanged life. And friends, it's not a once-for-all thing. We're not talking about a once-for-all second blessing. We're talking about a repeated access of your first blessing. 
because we have new tests of surrender every day. I mean, you can be walking with the Lord, things are going great, and then something happens that just good night, test everything. <laughs> and we again have to come to, I bow out. Lord, what do you want here? What are you doing? What am I supposed to see here? Because I don't see it. <laughs> but you can talk to God like that. He, he already knows what you're thinking anyway. You might as well tell him. <laughs> But to come to grips with, okay, Lord, I don't understand it, but this is what you're doing here. So I bow out. I need you to bow in. That's the exchange life. His robes for mine. We sang that the other night. That's justification. It's the same truth, just applied step by step. As you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that last night. You've been placed into him. You have put on him, but you are commanded to put on Christ. In other words, there's the repeated access where we put on him, his will, his power. There were some missionaries that for years, years, were in a Muslim country with no success that they could see. No one had gotten saved. No one even seemed interested. And then they heard the truth of the exchanged life, the spirit-filled Life, not I but Christ, not my will but his, not my ability but his. This was foreign to them. It's tragic, but, you know, by the way, it's all throughout history. You can find this understanding in Patrick, the missionary to Ireland. He actually wasn't Irish, he was Scottish, but uh, he was the missionary to Ireland that we connect there. And you can find throughout it John Bunyan, <laughs> a beautiful articulation of the exchange life and so on. It's all throughout the New Testament history. Why? Because it's in the New Testament. But these missionaries, they didn't understand it. And when they heard it, they thought, wow, our, not, not our life, but his. Christ lives in me dot, 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 by faith. So somehow you've got to take what he's giving or you miss out on it. And it, it intrigued them. And so they went to the Lord with that awakening on the dawn of their minds and said, now, Lord... We don't understand it all, but we are tired and we are ready to quit. You take over now. And if you fail, we will all go home. It's quite a prayer. That's what they prayed. In other words, we bow out. You bow in, and if you don't, we're out of here. There was a knock at the door. They opened it. It was a Muslim man. and said, would you tell me more about the Jesus you've been trying to tell me about? <laughs> he got saved. Yeah. Then there was another knock at the door. Another Muslim man. I want to know about your Jesus. That happened three times. Then they had another prayer meeting. This is amazing, but it's just like us. Lord, this is wonderful, but to really let, to really let us know this is you, <laughs> would you have a woman knock at the door because that's totally out of their cultural acceptance. The next knock was a woman. I need to know about your Jesus. 
Those were the first four of harvest. Friends, it's amazing what happens when it's not us, but Christ. And we really need to ask, okay, you know, I, I've told God I surrender all, but really have we? Is it really his power that we're trusting? Is it really his will or is it our will packaged as something good and we think it's his will? Is it really him? Because when it's him, it's him. And when it's him, God is glorified. That's the Jesus way of thinking. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.